Welcome, this is the Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror. My name is Marshall Smith, and today I am looking forward to talking about this film because of the fabulous social commentary that is interwoven into the film that I do think is more prominent and or more impactful than the commentary that may often be in other genres, or if it is in other genres, feels preachy. I'm Laura Patterson. Marshall and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado. And I like horror because it lets us look at the darker aspects of humanity and the darker aspects of society. And in the case of this film, I think really shines a, a useful light on some of the darker elements in society that affect a lot of people's lives. And does a really good job of, of making that argument very clear. And I think it's it's very effective in doing so. For this episode, we watched the 2019 film Black Christmas, directed by Sophia Tikal, written by Sophia Tikal and April Wolf. Sophia Tikal also made Always Shine, which she directed but did not write, but was, I think, is a star in it too anyhow um that is an episode i think i would like to return to at some point but uh it it was an exemplary film we strongly encourage you see it before listening to our episode because there will be extensive spoilers we assume you've seen the film before you uh listen and the synopsis for black christmas is it's a remake of the 74 bob clark film of the same name and a group of women students are stalked by a stranger during their christmas break and horror ensues i'm not going to read the rest of it because there's spoilers in that so yeah fabulous film we'll dive in all right so you don't have any history with the film no no which was one of my first questions actually what is like your first how, question? What, what was the first one how much did this like play off of it at all or not at all or the first one definitely had feminist components. The aesthetic is uh, really dead on. And and it was... <clears throat> one of the things it's most well known for is the creepy phone calls that the stalker places. And it is... Uh, if I remember correctly, it's regarded as, as really um, a first slasher even before Halloween... What year? 73, 74. That and I will say like feminist components in the sense of which was very much consistent here. 74. And uh, they like just casually mention somebody going to get an abortion and uh, and like casual drug use and like and I don't think it follows the shoot. I've seen it several times, but I haven't seen it super recently. I don't think the killer is ever identified. 
And then I think the one other thing is, uh, um, you know, in the intro, they said that Clark, who was the original director or the director of the original, had been inspired by the Italian Giallo films. And so what did we see? We saw Kill Baby Kill that was supposedly the first POV killer shot. He definitely took that and ran with it. And I know that that's another thing that people point out about Black Christmas is Halloween gets such credit for the POV scene at the opening. And Clark used that extensively in the Black Christmas of 74. So, so Black Christmas did a lot of the conventions that that Halloween has gotten credit for for a lot of years. And the, as far as the other feminist components, I, I don't remember, but they definitely t- took that in and modernized it and then ran with it quite a, quite a ways. I don't think there was any, any of the conspiracy and certainly not as extensive of a commentary in, this, in the original one. Was this a remake, sort of, or was it not? Like, was it was it the same general plot structure? Up, basically, uh, or not really? Yes, up until they... Yes, up until... I, I think the first one would have just ended when they dispatched the couple guys in hoods. And then there was the moment of like, okay, let's we're safe, let's run for it, or or we can get to the cops now. I think that's where the first one would have ended uh, in terms of, like, remake or reboot. But yeah, there's a lot of similarity. Interesting. First film's great. I, I'm wondering why we haven't seen it already. I've seen I, it. <laughs> Several times. I, it. I own it on VHS, as a matter of fact. We did all those slashers and we didn't do it. And I feel like this obviously warrants a ton of consideration. It. I was thinking, my first question, and I almost leaned over to you at the beginning of the film and said, do you know if this is supposed to be like a, a remake or not? Because I wanted to know if I was watching something play out that had already been kind of like pre determined you know 20 how long ago 30 years ago 45 years ago i'm so old oh my gosh (laughs) oh dear um yeah so like like when we watched rob zombies halloween for example there were critiques i had in watching his film that i like would think back on and say, well, but he's following the Halloween structure and that's roughly the Halloween structure. And I wanted to keep that in mind. So like, I was thinking in terms of like plot dynamics, I wanted to be ready if I was being critical of things to just know if that was, if they were making all of their decisions fresh or if these were decisions that like some of it might've been dictated for them. I I don't think they had nearly the legacy to rely on. I mean, just the fact that like you haven't seen it. I mean, Black Christmas is, is known amongst folks who are like super into slasher films, but it's definitely not, it's not Halloween. Well, what's so interesting then is that I was like halfway through this film and I thought, oh, I'm glad I didn't ask because I didn't need to ask because clearly this is not a remake because it seems so modern in terms of its point. Yeah. I mean, I, it was it was comical, honestly, to be sitting there watching it with you and thinking, like, you obviously wrote this. <laughs> like, you didn't tell me, and now you're taking me to the theater just all I would like, never do that to you <laughs> to see this film that you clearly wrote. Like, I mean, it was it was. Um, it is a movie I wish I wrote all day. I wish I wrote it. That it was going to be that. No, I like I said, I knew that Sophia Tikal 
um, who we were supposed to do the podcast on campus, Always Shine. That was oh. her pr- previous film. What's she done or what? Tell me about her. Uh, that's all I know. Oh. She made one other film before that called Green that was apparently real small and has done some acting and some other work, but this is really her. Well, Always Shine, I think, got some real like indie festival acknowledgement and uh what's the star of always shine or one of the stars is um uh i think her name is Mackenzie davis who ended up who's ended up, went on to atomic blonde and is the in the new terminator dark fate and it just like has become a huge star so it always shine is horror ish i think like thriller horror i mean it was okay. horror enough that we were gonna do it for an episode. I can't remember what I looked up about it, if I did, actually, when you suggested that. But but no, I didn't really know. I knew that, I mean, I know the first, I knew the first film was acknowledged as having feminist components and, like, women being active and and really, you know, in a final girl sort of sense, in a first wave final girl kind of way. I, I wish I would have gotten it rewatched, but that was part of the reason I was interested in seeing this was to see what they had done with it because there's no you know i mean in this day and age there's no obligation i mean just look at child's play right and and some of these like everything's being rebooted halloween i think yeah i think rob zombie i don't know if he was constrained by studio or just by his own effort to homage because he's in that i don't think they were particularly i don't think they were trying to rely on or remain within the confines of the 1973 film. I don't think at all. I I feel like this is taking a real effort of kind of ego tampering to like comment truthfully on this film because I I really liked it. Oh, and I first of all walked in expecting to hate it and (laughs) told you last night I thought it was going to be just atrociously (laughs) terrible for reasons that we can get into later that are also kind of interesting. But Beyond that, I want to say that I, as soon as it, which was about 30 seconds into the film, as soon as it was clearly obvious that, like, you wrote the film, <laughs> I was kind of ready to be critical. No, that, that's okay. Because I don't like you, but because we've had these sort of discussions about artistic stuff before that, like, you can take the tack of finding your ideological point and not, not wasting any opportunity to hit on it, which... I often feel makes things seem a bit contrived and feels to me like less like the experience of walking with a person through an experience. You know, it, it's it's more, I don't know, everything becomes a metaphor, I suppose. And on the one hand, like, I love metaphors in films, but when <laughs> everything is a metaphor and it seems like there's no room for anything other than, like, only talking about what you're talking about, I tend to often balk at that a little bit and when I've read like your screenplay yeah. and you tend to do that I sometimes come in a little bit critical <laughs> on that front and I I have to say I I was trying really hard to keep an open mind at the same time feeling like I wanted to just lock into my own the arguments I've made in the past and by the end of the film I thought first of all it was really good and I have to admit that that way of telling a story I thought was really effective for what they were trying to get across and I also found it to be really useful. It was less, it was less like personally compelling in a character driven kind of way. Hmm. You know, I mean, I, I, I will still say that that was true, but that didn't feel like what it was about. And I felt like for making the argument that it tried to make, 
it did it really, really, really well. And I don't think it would have been better served by backing off on that a little bit. And I actually felt like I needed to admit <laughs> to you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. That can be done incredibly well, um, which is, it's funny to me then that you even say that it, it has a lot of similarity to the previous version of the film, because I had decided halfway through that clearly it doesn't because this felt like such a modern theme, I guess. Um, and I'm even more so impressed than the older film really took that on. I mean, you know, took on some of the feminist aspects of this film in any level of depth compared to what this film did. But, yeah. um, I mean, this film just went for it. Yeah. Every single line and every single action and everything in the film was meant to be, was meant to make that argument. And, and I'll just say one more thing. When, who was it? Our main character went to the rally. Is that, was she rally? Yes. When she went to the police officer, the security guard, whoever that was. And, you know, she walks in and I got a little bit of like, my inclination in this sort of bubbled up and I thought, oh, he's going to be just terrible. Of course he is. We know what's going to play out because that's the argument you're making. Fine. And um, I was a little bit disappointed when there was no nuance in his interaction. And you knew it from the second he started squeezing that mayonnaise, mayonnaise on the out of a packet. You just knew it. And then I was like, I, I don't know if I'm mad at you for making him squeeze mayonnaise on a bologna sandwich because you're, you're telling me in advance how I'm supposed to feel about this person. And I know you're going to, I know you're going to make him a monster. I just know it. And, um, oh my God. I blame IMDb for that. That's a pop-up ad on IMDb. That's terrible and heinous because I haven't opened to see character names. Uh, go ahead. Okay. So mayonnaise. And I, I started off with that interaction thinking just oh please just give him any level of nuance just something and they didn't and by the end of it i was glad they didn't because i i found myself legitimately hating him <laughs> and i think you were oh. supposed to like you were supposed to hate that uh whatever you want to call it like that attitude or that that there's a word for that but like that pattern in society like you're supposed to Patriarch. hate that well yeah but i mean <laughs> in particular what he was meant to evidence, oh, okay, you know yeah. And that just felt right. And then I felt like I needed to hand it to them. I was even okay with their mayonnaise and bologna or whatever it was by the end of that. And I, I just kept having that experience throughout the film. I thought it was great. I would never have written it that way. And I think it was better for it. And I think I need to admit that. And also, gosh, yeah, I thought it was going to be like one of the worst films we saw this year. And I was completely wrong. I appreciate that. Um, you willing to say that. I would like to think that I would also be willing to when things are, if the tables were turned or when the tables are turned to be able to recognize that. I mean, I like, this is, this is my movie. Yeah. Like I said, I wish I wrote this. This is a movie I would, I, I would have loved to have written. I think it was all super well done, but I think the writing as much as anything carried the film. I mean, everything else was, she, the direction was great. Acting was great. All of that. But yeah, the writing was felt like, like you said, it was all ideological, but it felt natural. It felt real. Characters felt real. Natural enough. Natural I think enough. On that line, sometimes for me, where I was like, "Oh, you're gonna tip off." Like I could, you know, I, it felt like a delicate balance because they were trying so hard to make an argument in, with every line and with every moment. But I think it, I think it pulled it off. Pulled it off, yeah. But the exposition when when Chris and Riley are in the car and she gets out after they have this like argument about how you should fight um, or just before that, before she gets out, that was a little heavy on exposition. I thought, 
And then in the ceremony that uh, she's subjected to towards the end, I thought that was a little heavy on exposition too, but totally in a forgivable way, totally forgivable. And I think if it, especially like you're saying what they're doing, especially if they had left any of that less delineated, it would have left room for, oh, well, maybe that's not what, maybe not for me, but for a lot of folks. This is a film I would show my students to be like, there's a message. Don't talk to me about, oh, you're overthinking stuff and it's so too, you know, just relax and shut up and watch the movie and enjoy it. Like, can't you just turn your brain off? This is the film. I probably will assign this next semester. This is 100% not peeping Tom. Right. <laughs> Right, right. There is no doubt. For those and, of you who don't know the story, I just have to say, at the end of Peeping Tom, Marshall gave this wonderful monologue about what Peeping Tom was about, and his father, who was there at the time, stood up and said something like, "What do you, what do you say? Like, that's just bullshit. It was just a bad film." <laughs> like, after like, I was ready to give him like the slow clap applause. I was totally drawn in. And, <laughs> yeah, that's, anyway. that's a favorite story. So can I can I jump back on the conversation you were yeah. talking about when they were in the car? Yeah. For um, who, what was the other woman's name? I, I so, have a hard time with names in this film. I don't know why. Riley was our main character. Here's our. I know. I'm probably going to splice this in earlier. Here's our recap for cast, which would be helpful for I think us and listeners. Riley is our main character. Chris is uh, black, multiracial, dark skinned. The woman who got the bus taken out of. Yes. Well, let's do it that way. School. Riley's main character who was assaulted. Chris was the petitioner who got the bus taken out. Marty is the first, is the person who gets wounded by the arrow. Jesse is, um, Kellyanne Conway. (laughs) She's the, she's the woman who's sold out her. No, I'm sorry. Helena sold out her, sold out her gender. Oh, I just did a great disservice to Jesse. Jesse is, I don't know who is, Jesse, I feel like she's the one who showed back up at the end and was like, yes, yes, I think so. Yeah, then down for, and Lindsay is the, Lindsay is killed in the first, in the opening scene. She's our snow angel. So I was going to say, just as you were reading that list, that again, you wrote this film because all the characters had names that could be either... Male or female. Absolutely. Um, except except for the one who sold out. But right. that's not true because of Lindsay, I guess. Lindsay can be... Lindsay's totally a man's oh, name. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Historically. Uh, and then the oh, other... Lindsay sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then Zoe there. Una? Ona? Okay. Yeah, she was in it, but I don't Anna? remember what she did. I would okay. like to read a lot into that name, but anyway. Um, yes, they're all final girl names. They're all gender, non-specific names, for sure. Oh, right. So the car ride. So it was Chris and Riley who were in the car. And that scene, I agree, also totally drove me crazy. And at first I thought, oh, gosh, like they were they were so tight and they were keeping this together so well. Because it was heavy on exposition or because of other things? Because they were taking it the supernatural oh. direction. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which, I mean, I think they actually pulled off and I'm amazed that they did it. But they did. But I don't think they pulled it off in that scene. Because I think they're, they're facing all of these... Um, real serious, real-world sort of problems going on that are very much happening because of actual men in the world. And I think that the film actually, it 
it was a lot better for that. It was better for the fact that the monster throughout the whole beginning of the film wasn't some sort of ambiguous, scary thing in the dark. It was these men. And particularly, like, this man who raped her. And, like, yeah. this man who was... You know, like, like, the men were doing things that were problematic. And they were actual people. And that was really helpful. And when they started to go the supernatural direction, I thought, oh, gosh, I can't imagine how you're going to hang your argument together well with that. Uh, and then on top of that, I thought it was really a strange contrast. Because just a few scenes before... I mean, gosh, they put everything in this film, which was great. But a few scenes before was when... Uh, Riley is in the house and is all scared and being quiet and whatever. And the boyfriend comes busting in who's, you know, there to apologize. And generally speaking, seem to be mostly like a, an okay, positive character. But he does the whole, like, what are you talking about, woman? You don't know what's right. I'm a man. I'm going to... And then he gets shot yeah. and everybody's in danger. And so, like, the argument there, of course, is that, like, the woman's voice needs to be listened to and she knows what's going on. And just because he's a man, he thinks he can, like, override this. And... I just couldn't help but want to parallel that in the car with the fact um, that we have... And, and they didn't really set up a power dynamic between the main, like between Chris and Riley. But I just couldn't help but think that Riley was going this very sort of standard horror film route with the danger. And Chris, who I think had been a lot more like eyes open to the real concerns in the world, maybe as opposed to Riley, who was like, I don't know if I want to address these things. And, you know, Riley was a little bit more sheltered on that front. That Riley starts taking it some direction that, that really does not feel practically helpful. Like, no, these men in particular are hurting us. And Riley's like, there's a monster in the bust of the whatever. We need to go find the source of the power. And it just, it paralleled for some reason for me the argument that was just being made about, like, you need to listen to women's voices. I felt like Chris was the one whose voice we needed to listen to. And it bothered me that then Riley kind of took that over, you know, that, that Riley became right. And, yeah, and I, something about that just didn't sit right with me. Although I do think they pulled off the supernatural part actually pretty well in the constraints of their argument, I, that bothered me. That was the only place I think in the film that bothered me. Yes, and I, and I think actually, I think that's the crux of what I am interested in talking about. I do want to step back and just lay out the argument so we have it um, spelled out. Uh, and by that I mean the the symbolic argument is that. Riley was assaulted, was wronged, and she was uh, wronged in a way that was a classic product of, and by classic, I mean... Frequently occurring. Yes, thank you, and historically grounded of a patriarchal elitist institution of, and a, and a racist institution of fraternities uh, where she, and she as being in a and authority is assaulted, is not believed, is then ostracized, and um, is managing that on her own with some help from her uh, friends who are women within um, the group of the sorority. And uh, the her friend, who is a woman of color, is the one who's actively out there pushing and processing and petitioning and fighting and is has to, like, coerce her or coax her white women sisters to join and support her, which is an analog for feminist progress in the U.S. in the last century or so, where uh, women of color have been really on the front lines and there's been a lot of critique that white women weren't were only interested in having women of color 
be allies for their problems, but not being willing to be allies for problems that were more specifically to women of color within fighting uh, sexism and, and patriarchy and racism. And so we have that laid out. And then through bonding with, and then we have a black man who, um, or a, a man of color who is kind of not really in the fight. It, and so the, and, and then we've got another, and then we've got a, the woman, Helena, who's um, also a victim of the patriarchy, but is playing this game that uh, people like Audre Lorde were criti- very critical of, of women who think that if they just play along, they'll get enough scraps that they'll be okay, and they'll miss the most of the most of the heat. So we've got these like great symbolic characters, and when 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 those folks ally and join together and work towards the same goal, they are effective and strong and and able to challenge and topple the white supremacist power structure represented by the fraternity and the and the college. We've also got men associated with this like supposedly dispassionate intellectualism and women with like there is more beyond you you can't really be a dispassionate observer like stories beyond the quote-unquote canon need to be acknowledged and recognized all of that's been played out really nicely when women when they are not working together they are less effective they when they're divided they they will be put apart the thing in the and so when we get to this car like you said i think the real problem is is chris is metaphorically chris is the black woman who's like we need to address these injustices now because they are killing folks and she as a white woman is saying that's all well and good i understand that these people are dying right now but there is a system of oppression that needs to be toppled that underlies all of this those are symptoms this is the disease and when they are not addressing those together they they uh, are not effective um, and and they divide. And that's been true historically. The problem is most of the time, right? And I mean that his- historically, what we have seen is that I, it, it gives this impression that white women were right. That if if Riley is the one who's correct. And so she's like, you know what? I'm going to cut you out of the cause as a black woman or as a woman of color. I'm going to go enlist a different ally, a man of color, because he will help me. And I'm going to go in and challenge. Then I'm going to be able to attack it. And the, and then the woman of color is left out of like, your problems aren't as important. So maybe that's actually okay. Because really what happens is the, the black man and the white woman who have allied together get somewhere and then get taken and knocked out and are shit out of luck until the women of color or the woman of color who's organized behind the scenes comes in and really saves the day. White woman still mostly gets credit because she gets to smash the statue symbolically anyway she gets credit but okay so there was all that that's basically the argument right let me jump in of the film yeah please because i was trying to keep a lot of that in my head first of all that was super great and i missed a few crucial pieces in there i think that you pulled together in your discussion so i'm so glad that you jumped in with that first of all i did not catch the like divided we're not going to be able to conquer this but together we can 
uh, theme, and I think you're absolutely right. Oh, and that yeah. actually bothered me in watching the film that people seemed so ineffective mm. when they were on their own. Though I'm thinking back to the scenes that bothered me, and they were all people by themselves. And the way you're presenting it, I love it, and I think it's great. And it didn't, I didn't catch it, and so to me, it felt like a for an otherwise so thoughtful film. It seemed like a strange way to incapacitate the women in the film because they seemed. Mm almost cartoonishly incapacitated right like it wasn't that they just and maybe i would have preferred them to then just be not effective but not comically ineffective because i mean just from the first scene the woman comes up to the door and she sees that the person opening the door is the person who'd been chasing her and she basically like kind of stands there and is like i'm sorry if i did something and just stands there and i thought run or something like you could you could put up a little bit of a better fight but i like what you're saying because symbolically that actually makes sense in the context of this argument so that's i think that's really good and i didn't catch that when i said it turned kind of supernatural that you're right by saying the power is coming from there it's a a structural power like that makes so much sense that okay the power is coming from this institution And so we need to go address the institution. I took it very literally the way she said it as like, something's going on with this bust and that's where all the power is coming from. And I was like, oh, come on. Like the power is not like some supernatural thing coming from some like monster rock, whatever. It just, it didn't even dawn on me that they meant, which I think she probably did. Because like I said, everything was clearly well thought out that she meant the institution. So I appreciate you saying that because I needed to hear those things to tie this together. And I, I like it better in that context. Right on. Um, and carry on. And so my emotional roller coaster was probably what you're saying only more so because I was loving every moment of the film. And then I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. We're going to let all these men off and blame it on, like you said, some magic cursed statue like you fucking i i mean i was at the point of like i you know i'm just ready to to rail uh, about this but and like you said i am amazed that they were able to pull that off because if i had to put it together in words as quickly as i can they manifested physically uh toxic masculinity as a toxic sludge and that is what poisons the the situation and it is it's passed down based on this historical legacy of honoring these folks who were themselves at least as problematic and it is sort of this uh this adherence to that sort of toxic masculinity is sort of a spell and it it does blind folks to behaving in reasonable ways and I was as convinced as I could possibly be that there's an argument to be made that this lure and this belief and this regard for toxic masculinity, we would I would call hegemonic masculinity, some more academic uh, version of that, that's fine, is comparable to some sort of black magic. It is. It has this power and this hold and this influence that it doesn't shouldn't have. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. I mean, it makes sense in a in a legacy sense, but why it can't just be given up and smashed is so that argument it made it as well as it could possibly be because I was ready to just throw up my hands and be like, "You've got to be kidding me! You did all this so perfectly, and now you're going to tell me, yeah." cursed statue is really the ones who are at fault and it's not the behavior and the actions of these men and they were able to bridge those they were able to make that argument that they are 
representatives of this and the sludge they're not the sludge or whatever it is the statue and sludge does not excuse it it explains it but they are still they are still the ones who are at fault they're still the ones who have perpetuated this it is their responsibility for the actions that they've taken so in a in a way that i don't know if i can even articulate they kept the responsibility while still having the the black magic the mystical part of it i wouldn't have thought you could do that it actually worked which yeah great i can't believe it (laughs) i I totally agree with that and i think it worked especially effectively because i I liked the kind of migraine thing Mm. that they pulled in which was like the men can get kind of sucked in right i guess to this yeah sludge if you want to put it that way. And I, and I think that was really helpful just in really characterizing the problem and how it exists in the world. Because I, I think it's not surprising that hegemonic masculinity has the power that it has because it is very culturally present. And I, I actually liked when the boyfriend came back and suddenly was making these arguments that were, you know, he had basically been an ally throughout the film. And at this point, he's not making like horribly awful arguments, but he starts just kind of slipping in the direction of like, hey, wait a second. Are you, you're lumping me in with them? And well, I, not everybody is wrong. And like, he just starts kind of inching that direction. And I think those arguments are so prevalent oh, in yeah. society. And it's so easy to get pulled into them that I think it would have been an omission not to have that in the film. And I wouldn't have thought of how to characterize it. I think doing it as magic was actually really effective. It, it, right. Because I think that fits. And I think it's not just, I would say it's not just sort of the draw of power i'm sure it's that too that people get sucked in you get sucked into arguments that align with like positions that will put you in power sure and so if you think you're gonna benefit it's really easy to kind of just close your eyes a little bit to the to the bad parts of the argument that you're buying into but i think even beyond that it's just a prevalent argument and it's just out there floating around you know even even divorced from its its power draw i think it has a draw just by virtue of its prevalence you hear it all the time and it's you know it's it's something that's just there and so i think making that a really palpable draw in the film is really actually helpful and effective yes and that was that's absolutely right i did not include that when i was giving like an overview of the argument of the film of yes we have the passive bystander white het man who is not actively doing anything terrible but is um culpable in his passivity he he is not fighting with and so he wants it both ways he wants to reap the benefits of having i guess in this case a girlfriend who is part of the part of the progressive scene without actually having to risk anything of his own and or even be willing to suck it up and hear how he is involved in it and and he, he and let's see how does that work out figuratively with him and so it's like yeah so then he comes in and he basically tries to rather than help her on her terms he tries to come in and be like i will be the i will use the white het man power against other white het men and that is the way to struggle and fight and that then i will be able to save the day by relying on these same the same power and the same institution and is immediately dispatched. 
and if he had if he had come to her side he would have been i mean the argument would be he would have been fine or he at least would have been somehow effective but he didn't listen to her he didn't come to her he was like no i'm still gonna do this which is another just brilliant allegory for the the whole argument yeah like you just you're right you you, you're not gonna it's the i think the the most prominent example of that that comes to mind for me is the like brother or father who's like well, I'm going to protect my daughter by threatening some other man with violence if he wrongs her or my wife or whatever, but it's still founded on a logic and of ownership and um, incapability of women. And rather than empowering her to uh, truly empowering your daughter, or your wife or whoever to, to resist on her own or to come to her, like, how do you want to do deal with it? It's like, no, I don't care what she wants. I'm going to go beat him up because that's how it needs to be. You know, that, I mean, that's the classic thing that I hear. And, and they totally, yeah, refuted that as well. Brilliantly. I, I mean, yeah. What, what was he that like, not all men was his line. And then it was something about like, but yeah, it was like spot on. Everything was so spot on. The writing was so spot on throughout. And yeah. I'm, I'm so glad they didn't lean into the like. Or somehow excuse it all of like, oh, it was a, like you said, a magic poison statue. (laughs) I think you were exactly right. I think it was meant to represent institutional power and structural power. And that's wonderful and brilliant. And I don't know if I would have put it there. I think that was, that was great. And and even further, like, it's not just about dismantling the statue, right? It's not just tearing down the Civil War monument. It's, these are symbols of these legacies and these white supremacist and and sexist institutions that have to be toppled like you can't just remove it and put it put it back in the in the locus of power and have the superficial cosmetic uh, solution you have to actually dismantle what produced a situation where people would put up that statue in the first place so great i think i love it this is totally my movie and i actually (laughs) even like the migraine red and the fact that you know when i don't remember his name whatever the boyfriend no the the other boyfriend oh when he came came back and he came back to sort of apologize i guess and then you know proceeded to like you said say that he was going to protect his women and get everybody killed or whatever but (laughs) but one of the first things he says when he comes in is like oh i've had this migraine all day yes and so i like that because i like that it it it, I think it argues in that scene that he's in this point of struggle. He's struggling with that same argument, and he's maybe there's something in him that is sort of trying to realize, like, oh wait, okay, you know, he comes back to apologize. He wants to, I don't know what he like. He maybe learn is the word I want to use here. That he's he's not he, he's in a place where he's being somewhat driven by this this sludge. Also, like he's he didn't. He doesn't know, and he's trying to figure right. it out and probably making a somewhat legitimate effort to, like, parse out what's actually going on. And I think that's very important to realize that a lot of people in society, it's, it's not like we're just born with an awareness of all of this. And so he's trying to be good, and the, you know, but the, yeah. the sludge wins out. And he does end up getting himself killed because he doesn't proceed in a way that would be helpful. But I like that, actually, that takes a little bit of culpability away from him because I actually think that's a better argument to make that again that it's, it's a mix of individual culpability yeah. and institutional and structural culpability and by pulling into his particular individual actions the institutional sludge or structural sludge that just 
really helped show that blend um, and made the the statue a, a crucial part of the argument that yeah. it would have been severely lacking if it didn't have, I mean, it was just absolutely severely lacking because it would have been focusing so much on individual action, individual decisions, and just ignoring the fact that this is a, a larger scale structural problem. Yeah. Yeah. And in that scene also, that was born out of Chris and Riley were in this heated debate about how hard you push, how fast and Riley still took on that classic, the classic white het feminist argument of just not everybody need, wants to fight all the time. And Chris is like, no, you ha- you have to push forward. They are fighting whether or not we are. So, or the the um, history is grinding people underfoot. The wheel is turning whether or not. So if you're not fighting, you're you're enabling. And then he steps into that to be like, okay. I think what I have to say is is really the important part right now. <laughs> like, like they're like having this really serious discussion about what and how do we connect. And instead of him, I, I don't even know what he would do, but he's like, the important part is that in this discussion, we don't mischaracterize all men. And it's like, that's not at all what has anything to do with anything right now. Just put your shit on hold and he can't do that. I mean, it's everything plays out so beautifully in the, in the symbolism of this uh, political struggle or this allegory of political struggle. It's so, I loved it. So good. I agree with you. And their Christmas song was really good. Like I didn't see it coming. I mean, I didn't, I, it was strange because in the context of what they were clearly putting out there ideologically, they didn't actually show their cards that they were going to use this as a, a form of resistance. At least I didn't see it coming. No, And not so at all. it was confusing. I'm like, why are you putting on these skimpy little Santa outfits? And like the seam sort of in contrast to what I feel like you're supposed to be talking about. And I, but then they just, they nailed it. I mean, it was just, it was perfect. And I, I really liked ending the film with the song again. Yeah. Oh Yeah. Yeah, th- yeah, that was absolutely that was awesome. I wonder if there's meant to be any send up of Mean Girls Christmas song in that because the costumes were so like the the Mean Girls version is they're at a school play and she's part of the plastics and so they're doing this like very catering to the male gaze, Jingle Bell Rock, and it's symbolic in Mean Girls because. At the last minute, Regina moves Katie into a different position. And so the choreography is mirrored for Gretchen. And so she like screws up. So it's all this like internal bickering and fighting that is tearing apart the plastics within them being eye candy or or a, a hegemonic femininity of catering to men and being concerned with appearance and not being again seeing each other as competition for for men and attention. And in this, they totally come together. And Riley, who's kind of the outsider, and Katie's the outsider in Mean Girl, she's the outsider in this, and she, like, struggles, and they, like, shield her figuratively and literally. And then they, when she's ready to bring her voice, they, like, come together again. Yeah, that was absolutely phenomenal scene. Absolutely great. Yeah. I thought it was interesting, too, that they did the Santa costumes and she was assaulted in the red dress. I think there was reclamation. That red dress is what I was 
assaulted in and this is me i'm back in a red dress and it's very similar like cut outfit um might have had whatever white fur for christmas or something but very similar and she's like okay i'm i'm ready to take this back so like that had come for full circle and then uses that dress again to strangle one of the attackers so i mean talk about evolving a symbol throughout a film fantastic probably come of my favorite things i just want to say the mayonnaise on the bologna was fucking just gold in terms of <laughs> like uh um symbol- symbolism and then the first thing that riley does when she leaves the house uh is she takes a banana with her and bites it off and i was like okay we should we know she's the feminist heroine <laughs> I was so mad at you, Marshall, when the mayonnaise worked. <laughs> when, I, when I decided it belonged there. Oh, God, um, it was so... Uh, packet mayonnaise. <laughs> so gross. <laughs> they actually navigated the technology really well. You know, we watched the preview for Fantasy Island. Or we, I listened to it. I tried to... I was like, oh, yeah, I should have left, but I didn't. I just shielded my eyes. And I was like... Oh, well, the cell phones don't work here, so I guess not everything is possible. And it was like, okay, you took like the cheapest, easiest way out for addressing technology that there could possibly be, um, which, okay, that's fine. But this, they like, they did well. They had the no color ID, they had the yik yak, what they called yip yap, I think, whatever. I thought of you also, and again, thought you wrote the film when <laughs> whoever it was gets calls and Riley leaves a voicemail, and the voicemail message was like, "Oh yeah, next time why don't you just text me?" <laughs> and I, I thought because right because in the film they have to I mean it's easier better maybe for the film's purposes to do voicemail because then you don't have to show the text, but that might be somewhat unrealistic if you're not me who <laughs> would rather call and leave a voicemail. <laughs> right, these are. 21-year-olds or 20-year-olds. Nobody's calling anybody. They didn't do Snapchat, which is probably what people would do. But my understanding is that texting is no no, no longer a primary means of communication. Well, so I have to tell you why I yeah. thought it was going to be so bad. Oh, yeah. That's actually relevant to what it was about. Oh, yeah, good. Um, and I, I looked up, we were debating between three different films last night, and two of which were more solidly horror. And so I looked at both of those on IMDb, and I usually go to the Metacritic page and just kind of see, I know I've said this before, but try to sometimes squint so I can't read the words, but just see what the ratings are and see if they're like, well, how it comes out overall, and then if they're like polarized, which is usually better, or, I mean, unless they're just all great, I guess that's good too. But like a middling thing can still be really good, especially if some people hate it and some people love it, or if they're all kind of clumped right around like the eh line. I was just curious. And there weren't Metacritic reviews for actually either of the films that we were considering, Hmm. which is strange. (laughs) But what I did find was like the just the little IMDb ratings or whatever, and this one got like a three out of 10 for user reviews. And the other film we were looking at got like a six or something. And I thought, oh my gosh, a three. Like, that's really bad. For a slasher film remake, that's really bad. And it, and, and I scrolled down to the bottom where the people like type out their reviews. And I didn't want to actually, again, dive into it because I didn't want to know much about it, especially not having seen the first Yeah, yeah right, right. And the first line of the first review I saw said like, you know, this had some potential, but it was a mostly useless remake of... Black Christmas. And so what I took from that was my expectation that this is going to be a mostly useless remake of some old thing that sucked. It's going to be a <laughs> child's play. Yeah, it's just going to be terrible because like three, I mean, nothing gets ranked as a three. Or Pet Cemetery is what I'm thinking of. Completely useless oh, yeah, yeah. remake of a 
film that was had some potential. In, in Pet Cemetery, I feel like deserved a three. Oh yeah, but totally. It wouldn't have got. I don't. Or think it got, I'd be curious what it got. It probably didn't get a three at all. I bet people kind of liked it. Totally. So I need to actually give it a three. It's got to be terrible, right. like absolutely terrible. But that makes me. That's interesting because it makes me think that the argument was just. First of all, needed to be this explicit and needed to be this heavy-handed and just laid right out there because I wonder if audiences are just resistant to it and if that's why right. people didn't like it. I mean, who's I don't know who's voting on that. I didn't dig farther because right. I didn't think I needed to. I didn't know it was going to be an interesting rating. I just... Uh, yeah, that's fair. It's I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a film that had a rating that low. That was actually good. I don't know if I've ever just ever seen a film that had... Maybe like <laughs> Human Centipede... Oh, it's yeah. probably rate, rated pretty badly. Huh. It might be that low, but I mean, it's like human centipede. Right, right. <laughs> There's a clear reason for that. Right. That's yeah. That's interesting. Whoever that is, whoever you are, who wrote that on IMDb, uh, on IMDb, you are wrong. Well, I don't, I don't mean the three came from them. I just mean it's oh. like an average of user reviews oh. or something. Well, whoever. I don't know how many people they you know like because there weren't even Metacritic reviews yet, so who knows? Huh. Like, I don't, really don't think I've ever seen anything at a three except. I'm guessing Human Centipede wow. might have been there. Wow. So that's interesting. And those two men that were talking, they had voices that carried very yeah. loudly. At the oh, yeah. I thought I was ready to shut them up like two seconds into the film and they didn't say anything. No, they were totally so. quiet through the film. But through the trailers, they yeah. were talking, just yeah. having a conversation the entire time. Yeah. They just had those voices yep. that like you could just hear yep. very clearly. Anyway, I was curious because they were talking after the film too and I almost wanted to stand there and hear what totally. they were going to say because... It was like two men sitting there together watching this film. And I'm just curious if if it was really off-putting to a lot of people or... And, and, and for me, like two men who are unaware enough of their... Or have enough privilege that they just take for granted in public space. They can talk at a full volume and take up room and just be obnoxious because nobody ever tells them to shut the fuck up or use a tone that like, <laughs> right, like learn how to and i was like well, how are you in this film that's exactly i was like did you come to the wrong theater like uh i don't know jumanji is down the road or whatever it is you know jumanji was actually decent it was terrible in terms of gender but anyway yeah i i would have been curious like how, why or how did you ever decide to see this and now i want to read the reviews so in order to get our social responsibility thing here going in terms of social responsibility, I I don't know, four and a half. I think the only quibble I have is possibly the implication that the white hat woman's uh, approach to addressing racist, patri- white patriarchy, white supremacy is the more effective strategy and should be prioritized over that of uh, women of color. There was no queer representation. Nobody was gay. Nobody's queer. Those are my two probably quibbles. And but in terms of like reflecting and depicting a issue that is currently happening or is relevant and is realistic, totally nailed it and addressed it very well. They took on a position of critiquing a very prominent and salient ongoing issue at, like you said, both a micro and macro level of individual, how this plays out and institutionally, what that means. I I would give it, I would still give it an A, but like a low A. I'd give it like a 93. 
I'm going to go for a solid high A. Oh, are you really? Yeah, I am. And, and, and my reasoning yeah, is, yeah. is exactly, I think. Because you're an easier grader than I am. <laughs> you need to crush it. <laughs> I think I, I probably I'm kidding. am. I'm However, kidding. also, That's fine. I think good. my first thought was like, yes, yes, I will agree with you on the critiques that you laid out there. Well, you brought that up. Yeah. The, yeah. But I, I would agree with you on that. And at the same time, this does exactly remind me of grading student papers when sometimes what you find is that there's like just a really stellar argument that stands out and that doesn't mean i can't find little critiques or whatever i'm not saying it's perfect but i'm saying compared to the field that it's playing in it just absolutely shines and stands (laughs) out and i think that is honestly relevant in terms of critiquing film to critique this in the field it plays in and in the classroom that this film sits in it is the standout shining example. And yes, I have those critiques. And I do the same thing, I, you know, even if I give a very high A for a paper that is exactly fits the mold of this film, where it's like I have a couple things that could be better. I write those comments in. I don't, I don't fail to comment and just say, oh, it's perfect. I give those critiques, but I also, I think, give credit where credit is due for absolutely exceeding by far the criteria that, that are generally met in this class. And I think that is absolutely what this film did. I think those comments deserve to be written, yeah. but I'm still going to give it a high A. Absolutely. This I often do this. I'll give it. I'll give a grade like that, and I'll go back and I'll look and I'll I'll reflect on the like you said the whole class, and I'll I'll make some minor adjustments. And and I think your argument's convincing. I think a solid like 95, 96. Like I wouldn't give it the like. I what I tell students is the closer I get to a hundred, the harder it is to earn points. So I wouldn't give it that like. 98 99 or perfect score Absolutely. but i would give it a yeah like you said a good strong a 96 we'll go 96 like yeah. yeah i agree i feel like it's like a token number of points off just to point out like hey please read my comments yeah you could have done a couple things slightly better but like this is but not like meant said, to impact your grade at all right you, got an a. you missed like one thing but everything else you did so well yeah okay you can't do everything and you've done so much so well and, yeah, and totally. to give credit, I, I and give I feel this a, way sometimes yeah. on grading papers, too. I'm going to give you extra slack, I feel like, yeah, because right. you did some things I didn't even catch and I wouldn't have thought of to do. Totally. So just for the few things I caught that you didn't, we're going to call that a wash because totally. you taught me some things. Yeah, that's great. That's fair. I tell students that, too, like when you get into those high 90s, it's when you're teaching me things. And so, yeah, somewhere in that... 96 is where I'm going to land. Great. It was a great fucking movie. Congratulations. Props to the folks who made it. And uh, we very much appreciate the film. You can find us on Instagram at Collective Nightmares. Our entire catalog of back episodes is at CollectiveNightmares.com. And we will be at the Mile High Horror Film Festival that is coming up in Denver in May of 2020. We'd love for you to say hello if you come out. We're really looking forward to the festival being back and being back in Denver. Uh, Horror films are our collective nightmares.
Are we set up? Yeah. We're set up. Oh, cool. Yeah. How long do you... Are you waiting for long? <laughs> I feel like... Uh, long enough to set up, it. I guess. Cool. On the crawl episode, you sounded a tiny bit like you were talking in a like empty swimming pool. There was like a ton of echo. Oh, really? Yeah, but it was strange. It was just you. And it might have just been at the beginning, too. Well, that's interesting. I don't know what that's about. You left these at the diner. Oh, thank you. Yep. <laughs> They're very important to me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh, and the other uh, conundrum is... Um, I don't have anyone to work tonight, so I have at most exactly an hour okay. to record. Okay. So... We can do it. We can do it. Yeah. Let's go then. Oh, uh, exactly. We could always do our intro later if we needed to. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. Or I can just copy and paste one or something. <laughs> um. <laughs> Melded those together. And I so I say four out of five. Are we doing a letter Four grade? and a half out of five. Oh, yeah. We should be doing letter grades. So, uh, like... 